Continuing with Zechariah, last week we heard that God had cleansed the, the high priest, the one who gives us access to God. He'd forgiven and accepted his people and he's assured them that they can have an ongoing relationship with their God if they remain faithful and obedient to him. So it really seems like everything's sorted. Isn't Zachariah's job finished? But there's still four more visions to go. What else does God want to say to his people? So let's hear about this fifth vision as we look at Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. And then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the land will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome uh, to that of Sam. So it's great that you're with us, especially if you're visiting. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And we're working through uh, this ancient book of Zechariah and thinking hard about these visions in the first part of the book. Um, so there's plenty to um, sink our teeth into again tonight. As it has been so far in the series. Uh, a couple of quick things I'll let you know about before I pray and then we look at this passage. Um, some of you know that uh, Pastor Mark's been away in the US at a conference in Washington, D.C. He returned on Thursday and then he tested positive to COVID on Friday morning. And so that's why you're not seeing him today and probably won't see him until the end of this coming week. And Clayton, who works in our office, tested positive this afternoon. So, um, if I'm looking worried, then there, there could be reason. No, I'm, 
Hopefully Ken and I will survive um, this next little period. Uh, but please pray for Clayton, pray for Mark uh, over this next week. But let me pray for us as we um, look at God's Word. We really need his help to understand um, a, a section like this and to apply it in our lives today. So let's ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your Word, the Bible, and that it's living and active, that it teaches us uh, all about what you have done in this world, uh, the way you have drawn together a people that have trusted in you. And we pray tonight as we think about um, what you are teaching us through the prophet Zechariah, that you help us to see our need of uh, right response to you in our lives today. And we ask that you'd help us to understand as we look at it together. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in March of 1942, uh, with Japanese forces tightening their grip around the Philippines, General Douglas MacArthur, who led the American troops in the defence of the Philippines, was ordered to personally withdraw to Australia as his troops themselves were withdrawn further south in Southeast Asia. He landed in Melbourne, and after reaching Melbourne, he vowed to liberate the Philippines in the years ahead, and he famously proclaimed, I shall return. Well, people at the time thought that was a big claim, but by 1944, he was actually poised to fulfill his promise. On October 20 that year, uh, the Americans were stationed offshore um, of Late Island in central Philippines, and at 10 a.m., his troops stormed the beach and the heaviest fighting took place uh, in a place called Red Beach. And by early afternoon, MacArthur's men had secured the area. He was sitting about two miles offshore on the USS uh, Nashville, and he was restless. He wanted to fulfill his promise and to step foot himself on the beach. And at 1 p.m., he and his entourage um, headed off in a landing craft, uh, but it was so uh, shallow, the waters, they had to stop about 50 metres out and then wade the last little bit into the beach. And this famous shot was taken as he was coming ashore and was plastered on American newspapers uh, the next day all around the country. But the result was this image of a triumphant MacArthur, uh, jaw firmly set, uh, steely-eyed as he approached the beach, having fulfilled his promise. He had returned. And he would liberate the Philippines in uh, the days and weeks that followed. It's a famous example because it's one of those rare occasions where somebody made a big promise about the future and actually fulfilled it. Um, so often we hear promises that just don't happen. And so the case usually when we hear people stating some big thing that's going to happen in the future is that we're cynical, aren't we? We're just not sure to believe. So many leaders' words remain unfulfilled. And I think as we come to the Bible at times, uh, whether we're a Christian or not, uh, we can sometimes struggle to believe God's promises to us. God makes big claims and statements in the Bible. And sometimes we can struggle to trust his word. And so tonight as we look at Zechariah chapter 4, we're going to consider a big question that comes out of this section. And that is, why should we trust God's promises? Why should we trust God's promises? Why are his commitments different and worthy of our faith? Why should we trust God's promise? Two answers to that question tonight. First of them is this, because they don't depend on human strength. They don't depend 
on human strength. Have a look again at verses 2 to 6 that was read for us before. Verse 2, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. And so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Well, this is the fifth part of an eight-part vision, and the focus initially here is on this very ornate lampstand, or we might even think of a fancy candelabra on a table. It had um, seven parts or stems to it. Um, it's famous in Jewish circles, often referred to as a menorah. And the one that's being described here is actually... Um, reflects one that was first described in the Bible back in Exodus 25. Moses was commanded um, to make such um, a menorah to sit within the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was the place where the people came to worship God. And uh, it sat there, and later when the temple, a more solid building, was made by Solomon, they ended up with um, ten of these actually spread around the temple. And they were to be kept going. Um, but you notice in this one here, um, it's a bit different actually to what was previously described in the Bible and what was placed in the temple. Here you've got this added bowl on the top and you've got these streams of oil coming from two olive trees. It's clearly a vision which is a bit out of this world. And because what you have is an automatic supply of oil to these lamps, Whereas previously in the tabernacle or the temple, you had priests that would come in and continue to supply olive oil and trim the lamps so that they would always be burning. The idea of it was it was a symbol of God's presence, his constant presence with his people in, as represented in the temple. And so what is this lampstand in this vision? It's not quite like the ones that were physically uh, produced and used in the previous years by the people. Well, it's thought by some that maybe this represents the community of people, of God's people. Uh, remember, we've seen over the last few weeks they had returned from exile. They had been really their city destroyed 90 years earlier by the Babylonians. They had been taken away into exile to live in Babylon. Only in the past 20 years had they been coming back to Jerusalem and their home, the promised land in Israel. But only some of them returned and many are still living in Babylon and so it's thought, well, maybe it's representative of the return of God's people. But the wider association, as I've already been mentioning, the Old Testament of a menorah or this seven-branched uh, lampstand is really God's presence with his people. And that's what it had meant to symbolize in the temple previously. And, of course, it's lit, and so, you know, it's a fire, and fire always in the Old Testament was representative of God's presence. Think of the exodus from Egypt and the pillar of fire that led the people by night. And so although this vision centers on Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Jerusalem, who's got this big task of rebuilding the place after all the destruction, it's actually a vision that's more about 
how God will sustain the life of the community that has returned to the ruins. And how will they do this work of rebuilding? Because they're a small group and they're surrounded by other nations that actually don't want to see Israel rebuilt. They don't want to see the temple go ahead or the walls rebuilt. And so this picture of the menorah representing God's presence was to be a spur to the people. Well, if we have God with us, he is present with his people again, that will spur us on with this great task that is set before us. Maybe we can do this. But even with such encouragement, even if God is with them, how are they going to have the strength to complete a mammoth task? At this point in time, it's just rubble, the temple. Um, All they have done is put a couple of foundation stones down. Next to nothing has been done so far. How are they going to progress things with such a small band of people surrounded by hostility? Well, that's the angel's explanation in verse 6, that key verse that we heard read Here we have the central message of the vision. It's a word from the Lord primarily to this governor Zerubbabel that's going to make the rebuilding of the temple happen. And we're told that he is going to be empowered by God's spirit to do the work. And more broadly, it's a word to all the people who are living in Jerusalem at this time that God will sustain them, sustain the life of their community. And so the oil that is pictured as running into uh, this fancy uh, candelabra is actually representative of God's spirit flowing in, sustaining it's his presence with them, his spirit that is given that will enable the people. And see, what they're being told through this is that as they look at the massive job in front of them, they're not to think, oh, we just can't do this in our human strength. That's exactly the point. And God says, no, well, you, it's not about human strength. It's not about what you can do or produce, but actually God will enable you for this big task before you. Now, that's a principle that relates to people who trust in God today. The same is true when we get to the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, from the very beginning of the church's life and their particular mission to make disciples of all nations God's new covenant people will be empowered by him. That is the role of the church. We are not to build a temple today. We are to build Christ's church. But it's not about bricks and mortar. The church is not a building, but rather we're taught in the New Testament it's the gathering of God's people. And so it's about seeing more and more people come to trust in Jesus as Christ's church is built over time. And we're going to need help to do that. If people are going to hear the good news about Jesus and his payment for our debt before God. And so even before the Holy Spirit was given to people to enable them and empower them to share the message, we're told in Acts 1 verse 8, the first disciples got this message, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the result from that point on, from Acts 2, when God's people received his spirit, was that they were empowered to share and a proclamation of the gospel did go out to the ends of the earth. That's what's been happening for the last 2,000 years. The church would be built. The world would hear about Jesus as the good news of his death and resurrection was shared, not in people's own strength, but empowered by God's spirit given to us. 
in our own strength, we just can't do this task. It's too big for us. Just like the Israelites who looked at the rubble of the temple and thought, we'll never do this. As we look at our world today, how will all people hear about Jesus? We need God's help. We need God's strength to do this. And he has been about doing that for the last 2,000 years in amazing ways that clearly showed that it wasn't in our weakness that anything happened, but truly his strength. The Welsh Revival, you may have heard of this. In 1904, the Welsh Revival began with a prayer meeting and a a relatively uneducated man named Evan Roberts. He started prayer meetings at his local church, Mariah Church, on October 31, and they suddenly spread throughout the country. Eventually, there were hundreds of meetings all around Wales with the sound of prayer and exhortation and confession coming from them. You know, within eight or nine months in June of 1905, as these meetings continued, 100,000 people in Wales had come to place their trust in Jesus. That's why it was called a a revival. And the effect on Welsh society was just completely undeniable. At the time, the biggest thing that happened in Wales was their coal mines. They were supplying coal for the whole of Britain. But the miners converted in the revival no longer kicked their horses or swore at them to make them move, and so the horses didn't know what to do. The the plummeting amount of output from the mines was noticeable. A number of the courts in Wales shut down. Judges had no cases to judge because of the huge change that was happening in the population. There was a famous pastor in London at the time named Campbell Morgan. He's the pastor at Westminster Chapel. And he said this of what was happening in Wales. He said, God has set his hand upon this lad, beautiful in his simplicity, ordained in his devotion, lacking all the qualities that we would look for in a preacher or a prophet or a leader. But God has put him in the forefront of this amazing movement that the world may see that he chooses things that are not to bring the things that are to nothing, the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Here is a man who lacks all the essential qualities which we say make for greatness in order that through him in simplicity and power, God may have and move in victory. It was a wonderful time. God's work and the fulfillment of his promise of the good news going out to the nations was happening in a big way at that moment. And it didn't depend on anyone's strength. It was clearly there was human weakness, but there was the power of God's spirit at work drawing people to trust in the amazing good news of Jesus who died for them. And that brings me to a second answer to our question of why we should trust God's promises, not only because he has given his Holy Spirit to empower his people, but secondly, because God's strength defies worldly wisdom. God's strength defies worldly wisdom. So notice again what is stated in verses 7 to 10. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. And then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands will also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand 
of Zerubbabel. In these verses here, um, Zechariah receives a further message regarding uh, the governor and his success in bringing this rebuilding of the temple that's just beginning to completion. Some people have seen this mighty mountain that's going to be leveled in verse 7 as all the rubble that was left by the destruction of the temple, Uh, but it's more likely that it just represents any and every obstacle that he's going to face in the rebuilding project. As things went on, we read in Ezra chapter 5 and 6 that there were many people opposing the work. Surrounding nations, as I mentioned earlier, were none too happy about this. There were lots of difficulty the people didn't have. Uh, the wherewithal and uh, the money and all the stone that was needed. It was a difficult task, a huge task. But we're assured here that it will happen. Whatever difficulties the rubble will face, it's going to be finished. And so the capstone, which is literally the headstone in verse 7, is like the final stone that will complete the building. And so we've got this picture here of all the people gathered when finally it reaches that day where the, the project is complete and they're going to just be there cheering when the final stone as it was is put on the temple by Zerubbabel the people will gather and shout out we're told God bless it God bless it and what this pictures is not just you know excitement that we've reached that point or that Zerubbabel has achieved the impossible but it's actually talking about God's covenant faithfulness God promises that this thing is going to happen and when that day finally comes they will be able to declare God has done it. God has fulfilled his plans. And Zechariah is announcing what will happen. And in verses 8 to 10, we see more of the same as Zechariah gets confirmed again that Zerubbabel is going to complete it. Now, you've got to imagine, too, that the governor had, he was like the king or the ruler of the area. At the time, they were under the Persian Empire and he was reporting back to someone else. He had to pay taxes. He had 101 things to do. But Zechariah the prophet is adamant that this is the most significant thing that he'll be doing as governor. This is the thing that needs to happen because this is God's plan for his people. But from a purely human perspective, as I've mentioned, it just seemed like a hopeless project. It was just too big. And that's why they get the reminder yet again in verse 10, did you notice? Don't despise the day of small things. You know, even if things seem unlikely from a worldly viewpoint, God can do it. God loves proving our world wrong, defying what we think is impossible because this um, task that they have is so significant and they're not to be put off by the limited progress to this point. They're not to be worried that there's only a few foundations. God can do this. He will do it through his people. And verse 10 also anticipates even God's joy at the moment that it will be finally completed. And so God is the God of the impossible. That's what's being said here. When we look at things and think it can't be done, humanly speaking, God will defy our wisdom. Small things can grow. Never underestimate small beginnings. Happens a lot in our world, doesn't it? Have you ever done that? It's a classic story in business, isn't it? Um, Take, for example, the story of the young IT geek, Mark Zuckerberg. You probably know the story. 2004, he's 19 years old. He's hanging out at Harvard University. He's obviously a bit bored with his studies because he's got enough time to muck around in his dorm room and try and create a social networking site for his mates. As he does so, this thing takes off. Suddenly, within four years, his little social networking project has 50 million users. He gets approached by the giant company Microsoft. They say, look, 
we want to take $240 million stake in this company. He said, well, I haven't even floated it publicly yet. Don't worry, we'll give you the money. You can develop it further. He does. They decide in the aftermath that it's only 1.6% of Facebook that they've given him the money for. And so suddenly his company is valued at $15 billion. At that moment, MySpace is still the biggest network. No one's heard of MySpace these days, right? Soon Facebook took over, completely dominated the landscape. Four years later, after this little project, he becomes a billionaire at the age of 23. Would his friends have said to him, stop wasting your time, Mark, mucking around, you should be studying. What are you doing in your dorm room? It's like, I'm preparing to be a billionaire. <laughs> no one would have believed him, right? You know, at the end of last year, Facebook was valued at $660 billion. Zuckerberg's stake, his personal worth is $89 billion. He's the 10th richest person in the world. Not bad for a little project on the side of his study. You know, in 2015, he announced that he's earned so much money already from Facebook that he doesn't need to draw a wage from the company and he'll just be paid a dollar a day. Who would have believed it? From small things, big things can grow. God can do things bigger than Facebook, <laughs> let me tell you. And in verses 11 to 14, in the final section of the chapter, we see two olive trees being addressed that are on either side of this fancy lampstand. What is this about? Have a look again at verses 12 to 14. Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, poor Zachariah has been asking this question since verse 4, and he asks it again in verse 11 and verse 12, and he doesn't really get an answer in verse 14 at the end, even. Um, two anointed ones. Um, who are these two? Traditionally, people have read chapters 3 and 4 and thought, well, chapter 3 is about Joshua the high priest. Chapter 4 is about this governor Zerubbabel. These must be the two guys. Together, they're working to help the people to fulfill God's plans in Jerusalem as things get rebuilt and the temple especially here. Well, that's possible. It seems a natural conclusion. But it's far more likely, actually, that the two prominent figures here are the two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai. Uh, they're the two contemporaries that are speaking into this um, time of the life of the nation of Israel. Uh, they're um, referred to, obviously, in their two respective books that they've written, but they're also name-dropped in Ezra as he talks about their influence of speaking God's word to the people and urging them on, spurring them to do this great project that God has set before the people to build the temple. And one of the key marks of why it is these two is because we have this phrase at the end of verse, in verse 14 of standing by the Lord of all the earth. This is a phrase that's often used in the Old Testament to refer to having direct counsel from God. It's as if they're standing in the heavenly court with God, uh, receiving what needs to happen, seeing a picture into the future. And of course, a prophet is one that receives God's word and then transmits that to the people of God. And that's what they're doing in a remarkable way, spurring on the leaders who are there building and doing the bricks and mortar. And the reference to Zechariah and this role of the prophet becomes even more explicit in chapter 7, as we'll see in two weeks' time. 
But in this, what we are seeing happen in the first part, in verse 6, a focus on God's spirit, but here it's a focus on God's word that is being delivered through the prophets. God's spirit, God's word always work together through the Bible. We always see these two things held in unison. And so as the prophets speak God's living and powerful word, they're being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. And all of this highlights that while the people are the ones rebuilding under Zerubbabel, who's leading the whole thing, the main driving force is actually God, his word, his spirit. And so when Zerubbabel is told that he will build the temple not by might nor by power but by spirit, it's really just saying God is going to see this through. God can do the impossible. God's work always defies worldly wisdom. It doesn't depend on us. And that's why it will succeed. As we look at things in our human weakness, we think that'll never happen. But the God of all the universe can do the impossible before us. And his word is powerful. That's a theme that's not only coming at the end of this section of Zechariah 4, but then extends throughout the whole Bible. That God's word is powerful for the job that we have today too. As I said earlier, we're not trying to build a temple. We're not trying to build a church building. We're trying to gather a people, to build a people that are Christ's church today, people that are coming together as they trust in him and his payment for their sin. And so as the Apostle Paul states in Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. We've been equipped. You might say, well, how am I in my opportunities this week going to be able to share about Jesus with friends or family that I long to see, know the forgiveness that I've already experienced, that I long to see, have the hope that I have of eternal life in heaven with God after my earthly life is finished? Well, you've been given all that you need in God's word, the powerful gospel, in his spirit, which enables you to share his word with others. And there's such need, such need to the ends of our earth. William Carey stands out as one of the greatest missionaries since the Apostle Paul. He was born in Northamptonshire in England, and from a really early age he proved to be brilliant at languages. He was just amazing. He became a Baptist minister, and he strongly advocated to everyone who would listen that you needed to send missionaries to the furthest parts of the world. No one was sending missionaries out in that period. Mission work around the world had stopped. But he gave his fellow ministers no peace about this issue. He kept raising in every meeting, every opportunity he had. And you would think that his enthusiasm would be met with encouragement, right, by others. They'd say, fantastic, William. We'd love to see that. We'll join you in it. We'll support you. This is the best thing. No, sadly not. In one of the meetings, as he was trying to encourage the pastors, one older man said to him, Sit down, young man, and respect the opinions of your elders. If God wants to save those who haven't trusted in Jesus, he can do it without your help. Well, thankfully, Carey didn't listen. <laughs> he went ahead and started the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792. And in 1793, the very next year, he went out as their first missionary. He went to India. Now, he didn't see, he translated the Bible into various Indian languages so it was supplied to many people. He didn't see a lot of people come to trust in Jesus in his lifetime, but 50 years after his death in India in 1834, there were half a million 
Christians in India. And it just broke out from there. You see, the gospel had been contained in Europe and the United States at that point in the late 18th century. But with Carey and those that followed him, a new work began and the gospel started to be spread throughout the world. How did they do it? Well, Carey was just one guy. He struggled with poor health in India. Those that went to other places did also, like Adoniram Judson next door in Burma. Uh, they weren't supermen. They just had a belief that God's word was the power of salvation and that they were given the spirit that they might share it with all the strength that God would present them with. And, you know, nothing has changed uh, in the last 240 years. There's still great need around our world for the good news to go out. I don't know if you realise, but there's an annual statistical table that is put out on global mission. There's 7.9 billion people in the world at the moment. 2.5 billion of them, or 32%, are said to be Christian of one sort or another. And we might think, that's great. Nearly a third of the world are Christians. Um, job done, right? Not at all. That figure is down from 34.5% in 1900. In the last 120 years, we've actually been going backwards. And while numbers of Christians in Australia and parts of Europe continue to decline, there are bright spots in this world. Numbers in Africa and Asia and Latin America continue to grow. I don't know if you realise it, but there are more Presbyterians in the African country of Ghana today than there are in Scotland, where the church <laughs> began. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in the whole of Britain. God is at work. Things have shifted in our world, but still there is great need for the gospel to go out. 28% of the world are yet to hear the gospel explained in their language in a way that they can understand and respond. 28% of 7.9 billion. That's a lot of people. And you know, by 2050, it's estimated in another 25 years or so from now that there'll be 9.7 billion Turn those two figures around, 7.9 to 9.7 billion by 2050. And it's expected by that point there might be 3.3 billion Christians, but that would be a modest growth of about 0.3 of a percent if that happens over the next quarter century. We aren't, we're only just keeping pace with population growth. There is massive need, so much work to be done. Now, as you take in the breadth of the job, of making disciples of all nations the Great Commission, maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe you think, that's just impossible. How is that going to happen? That was how the Israelites looked at a temple that they had to build. But with regard to the building of Christ's church, we've been given all that we need. We have the powerful word of the gospel and we have God's empowering Holy Spirit. More than that, we have a promise from God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, there's a promise to follow through on. We need to step out expectantly as a result, knowing that the powerful combination of God's word and God's spirit is sufficient to advance the church so that many more people will hear the wonderful news that we can have right relationship with God that our debt before him can be dealt with, that we can enter into his family and have a hope that goes beyond this short life that we face with all its troubles. Well, we want to be a church that's about that. 
And maybe if you're a Christian here tonight, you're thinking, well, I could be part of the solution. <laughs> I could be somebody that's sent by this church. Our church supports a number of missionaries that we partner with that are sharing the gospel all around Australia, all around the world. If you don't feel convicted yet that you might be sent, then let me ask the next question. Are you praying for those that we already partner with? Are you praying for others beyond this church that you know of? Are you supporting them financially so that that good news continues to go out so that more people get to hear, have the joy of hearing and responding as you have had? And if you're somebody here tonight who's not a believer, if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, I want to say that we're on about this task not because we have a brand to spread, but because we have a message that brings life. And we are so convicted as believers that everybody needs to hear about Jesus. God created this world that we might be in right relationship with him, and the way to do that is to come to him through his son. And he has given him that he might lay down his life, bear our sin as he died on the cross, and be raised on the third day, so that that great message of faith in his payment might be spread to all nations. That's what we're about as Christians. That's what we're about as a church. And I hope you're excited about the opportunities that we're going to have, not just here in the Illawarra, but around this world, to see the word of life go out, go out in power. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God, abounding in love, wanting everyone to come to trust in your Son that they might have life, life eternal, real purpose now as we live in a world marred in all its messiness and chaos by sin, but that we might have a hope beyond this life of being with you, our creator and sustainer, and our Redeemer through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you sent him for us. Lord, help us to see the importance of this message going to all people, that everyone everywhere might have a chance to respond to your great love for them in the sending of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.